My name is David Miner. I'm an assistant pastor here. It's my great privilege to bring the word of God to you to proclaim the Lord Jesus. And our text this morning is continuing through the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, the rest of the passage in chapter 2, starting with the uh, 20, uh, first uh, with the 39th uh, verse. And um, if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, you may use the Pew Bible. You'll find this on page 858, 858. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy, Jesus, stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went on a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of our hearts be acceptable before you. Holy Spirit, show us Jesus. In his name we come. Amen. My favorite prof in college once said words to this effect. When you hear a question posed, don't just think about the answer immediately. Consider why the question? What's behind that question? Why are they asking it? It may just be a surface question. The real question might be underneath. So the title of my sermon today, perhaps you've noticed in the bulletin, is Where is Jesus? After all, that's the question of the parents. Where is he? But is that the real question? Is that what Luke wants us to get out of it? Is that 
what the Spirit put this little incident in the, the scriptures for our benefit? No, I think not. I think the real question is different. It's who is Jesus? And if you look at this chapter 2 of Luke, you'll notice that there's actually three voices speaking in chapter 2. Beautifully set out. There's the voice of the angels to the shepherds. For to you is born today in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And then there's the voice of Simeon the prophet. This is God's salvation revealed to me. The consolation of Israel has arrived. I can depart in peace. Let me go, Holy Father, Lord, let me go. And now the third voice in chapter 2, the boy Jesus. We're going to look at those uh, words from Jesus. But I want you to see that the real question is, who is Jesus? In fact, that's the way to outline Luke's gospel. It's the way to outline Matthew and Mark's gospel. Who is this man from Nazareth who's speaking with such authority? Who is this man that amazes people with his wisdom? Who is this man who commands the demons and they obey? Who is this man who heals with a word, rebukes the fever and it leaves? Who is this man that tames the winds and the waves? Is he a prophet? Is he Elijah? Is he perhaps the Messiah? And of course, there in the middle of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you get the answer, yes, he's the Messiah, but that doesn't answer the question. The question remains, what does it mean that Jesus is the Messiah? It means he must go to the cross. He must be buried. He must be resurrected again. And ultimately, it means that in his name, forgiveness is to be preached in all the world. So you can outline each of the synoptic gospels with this question, who is Jesus? And you can refer to the way that the answer is finally revealed. Now I want to handle this passage with three points. First of all, I want to talk about how Jesus comes to recognize who he is. Secondly, I want to look at his actual words, what they tell us about him. And finally, I want to apply all of this to ourselves, to you, to me. So, let's deal first with the question of how Jesus is developing an understanding of who he is. Now, some of you have heard that I've been able to hold in my arms recently in newborn babe a granddaughter who's not yet two weeks old. She doesn't know that she's Sylvia Blythe Avery. She doesn't yet know she's a sinner and can trust in Jesus and have a new identity as a child, a daughter of God. She doesn't know that yet. 
It's going to take time for her to learn that. What about Jesus? Did he have to learn who he was? Well, look at my text. Look at verse 40 of Luke 2. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. Look at the end of the text, verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. I remember years ago working in the trades around Christmas time. At lunch break, we were talking about the message of Christmas. And one of the younger workers there, when I posed, do you believe, I think I posed the question, do you believe that Jesus was the Son of God? No. That would mean God needed his diapers changed. Yes, that's what it means. Did that same child need to learn his multiplication tables? Did he need to learn how to read and write? Jesus was made like unto his brothers in every respect. He needed to learn obedience through the things which he suffered. And that word suffering was generally applied to what it happened to a school child through learning. You see, Jesus needed to learn this. Now, how might he have learned who he was? Well, he's 12. What does that tell us about some of the questions that might be posed around about that age? Where do babies come from? How do they get conceived? Might Jesus have asked that question? What would Mary have told him? You know, if you've been teased out there because there's some question about who your father really is, you need to know that I had a visitation from the angel Gabriel who told me that I would be Pregnant by the Holy Spirit. You need to know that, Jesus. Suppose he turned to his father, Joseph. What would he have heard from Joseph? Joseph would have said, I was an obedient to the angel who told me to take your mother, although she was already pregnant, to take her as my wife. Jesus would have likely heard that. And then when he looked at the scriptures, because now at age 12, he can read. And in Nazareth, there would have been in the synagogue copies of the book of Isaiah, because we know they were there later, because when he got there at the 18 years later and started his ministry there, he opened the scroll and started to read from Isaiah 61. Might he, before he was 12, had read from Isaiah 7:14? The virgin will conceive and bear a child, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. Might he have read the passage that I chose this morning that uh, Daniel Greco read? 
Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. But Mary, my mother, told me that he named me Jesus in the womb. From the body of my mother, he named me my name. What's going to happen to this bright, precocious young child as the Spirit drives home to the, him? Yes. He's not like his brothers and sisters. He's not like the, the other children in the town of Nazareth. He says to Joseph, why were we in Egypt? I seem to have these strange memories of being a toddler in Egypt. Where did you get this capital to have this business of being a carpenter? Oh, we had a visit from some astrologers from the East, and they showered us with these gifts. And then we had a warning that we had to flee. And we took you to save you from the soldiers of King Herod. All these things driving home on him, he would begin to recognize that Joseph, well, Joseph had probably already told him, I'm not your real father. He would become to realize that his real father was God. So, Let's go and see what he has to say to my text here again. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Your father and I. And what does he say? Why were you looking for me? Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? Didn't you know that? Haven't you, in effect, already told me that? Haven't you treasured up these things in your heart? You don't yet understand them. But I'm under obligation to my heavenly father to submit to you as my earthly father and mother. I'm building a record for those who will be my own a record of faithful, obedient service as a second Adam, as the true Israelite, the Israelite who keeps the word of God. So what do we see in these words? I think we see three things. I think we see one, a changing obligation, changing allegiance. Two, a developing agenda. 
and three, a sense of compulsion. Look at them here. Jesus needed to distance himself from his mother. The distancing will continue at Cana when she asks him to do a miracle there, at, when they run out of wine at the feast. It will continue in his ministry when his mother is particularly praised and Jesus puts his mother on the level with all else who hear the word of God. It will continue until the cross when he takes his obligation that remains to his mother and turns him over to the Apostle John. Don't ask me why that happened, I don't know. He's changing his sense of obligation. He's changing it to his heavenly father. Two, there's a growing sense of his identity, his, his agenda because of his identity as the son of God. He's, he's saying, I must have been in the temple. Why look? Just go to the temple. I had an obligation to be about my father's business or in the place of my father's house. Think about this. Nazareth was really an outpost. It was kind of neglected, shall we say. It was across the tracks. It was, for my kids, it was down the hill. It was different. It was not a place where there would have been wonderful teachers of the law. And here we have this opportunity to go right to the temple, to, the, to Jerusalem, to Zion. And he gets there and he gets to sit in the temple where people are more interested in what he's not developing an interest in. He sits there and he listens. It was a whole week's festival, but according to the uh, Mishnah, that uh, it, most, tour, uh, most of the pilgrims were allowed to go home after a couple of days. And maybe that's when the Nazareth party went home. And his parents figured, well, he's, his dad figured, well, he's with his mother and the smaller children. And his mom figured, well, he's now getting pretty old. He's with his dad. Or maybe he's with his friends. And then they can't find him. And they go back. And on the third day, one day out, one day back, on the third day, they find him in the temple. And his agenda is, that's where he had to be. We'll see this agenda developing. Early in his gospel ministry in Luke, he's, uh, all the people from Copernicus uh, really want to see him again. And the, uh, his early disciples come and tell him, everybody's looking for you. No. We got to go elsewhere. That's why I came. I have to go and preach the gospel in other places. Later, he had to cure the crippled woman on the Sabbath. He had to visit the home of Zacchaeus on his way to the cross in Jerusalem. He had to die. He had to be buried. He had to be resurrected. The gospel has to be proclaimed in his name to all nations, the forgiveness of sins. That's his agenda. In fact, you might call that his compulsion. Notice there, 
I must be about my father's business. I must be in my father's house. You see, it's a strong Greek uh, idiom. The classical Greeks referred it to fate. The Jewish uh, Greek speakers referred it to the sovereignty of God which cannot be thwarted. And Jesus had that sense of compulsion. Jesus had that, that agenda. Here's how he describes that agenda in the Gospel of John. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. I can't act on my own, he's saying. I act when I see the Father acting. Whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. The Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Or again, in the, in the next chapter, chapter 6, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. This is the will of my Father in heaven, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. This boy is developing a sense of his obligation to his father in heaven, primarily his, an agenda to fulfill his father's uh, will and a sense of compulsion to do it. Okay, how do we apply this? How do you and I apply this to ourselves today? The first thing I want you to be amazed at is the condescension of your Savior that he would need to learn the multiplication tables, that he would be willing to have his diapers changed, that he would be willing to learn who he was by the ordinary means of grace. That's your Savior. Have you considered that your Savior was a man of faith par excellence? That what he did in weakness and frailty and humility is what he gives to you as a record that you can claim by faith in him. Have you considered that Jesus, as the book of Hebrews, but by the way, the book of Hebrews seems to reflect in the same kinds of ways that I've been reflecting in this, word, in this sermon about the way that Jesus learned things. He was made like us in every respect. He was tempted in every way like we are tempted. He sympathizes with us because he's been through it. And as the, book of, the author of the book of Hebrews gives us that magnificent chapter 11 about the heroes of the faith, and then he gets to chapter 12, and he says, you too are running this race like the ancient 
heroes of faith ran their race. You two are running it. And the way you run this race is by looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter. That's our ESV translation. The King James, for those of you who are old enough, the captain and the, I think, finisher of our faith. The trailblazer is another good way to translate that first word that's translated founder or, uh, or pioneer. He's the trailblazer, but he wasn't just a trailblazer. He's the one who persevered all the way through and accomplished it successfully. You know, some people, they get started. Uh, actually, um, I'm reminded with humor of um, the guy who started the church in New Jersey that I pastored a couple of decades later, or decade and a half later. A brother who was like him as they came to examine the progress of this mission church, he said, oh, well, I know what this guy's like, because I'm, I'm just like him. He's a door opener. He sees a wonderful opportunity. He opens the door, and he invites other people to come in. Hey, hold the door for me. And then he goes, I'll find another door to open. He didn't finish either work. That's not what Jesus did. He was a trailblazer, but he pursued, persevered, and he finished it. He's an example for you. He gives you that record to claim by faith, that record which is imputed to you who fail. And he also gives you that example to follow. If Jesus needed the ordinary means of grace to accomplish his ministry, do you not? Read the Gospels about how the Spirit is at work in the ministry of the Lord Jesus. Does he heal on his own? No, the Spirit is there to enable him. Did he pick his own disciples? Only after a whole night of prayer on the mountain. Did he name his disciples? Jesus used the means of grace. You are called to do the same. And as I close, I want to refer uh, to the other two readings that were read this morning by Daniel Greco. The Galatians and the John readings. What did Jesus learn as he reads Isaiah and the rest of the Old Testament that point to him? He learns that he's the son of God. Have you read the scriptures and discovered that you can be an adopted child of God, son, daughter? Have you taken to heart Galatians 4? That when the fullness of time, when time was ripe, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to keep the law that you couldn't keep, to redeem you who were under the law, so that you might receive adoption as sons. 
Don't try to earn your way to God's good favor. Jesus did it on your behalf. Accept that you are a child of God on the basis of this scripture. Or if Galatians doesn't speak to you, look at John. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into this world. He was in this world. The world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in him, in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You can be called a child of God through Jesus. The scripture teaches that. Meditate on that. Let it sink in this Christmas season that you are a brother and sister of the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of glory, by adoption. The scripture, the spirit applying that scripture to your heart and mind will draw it home. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your condescension and being made like us in every respect. Holy Spirit, thank you for the inspiration of your, the word of God, a tool that not only teaches us, but taught our Savior in his youth as the incarnate God-man. Jesus, thank you, Father in heaven. Thank you for bringing us into your family, making us co-heirs with your Son, in whose name we pray, amen.